Welcome to Blog and May Blog from DougWills.com. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Before we get going, I wanted to make sure you were aware of Douglas Wilson's new book, Plotactivity, A Practical Theology of Work and Wealth. In this book, Douglas Wilson both considers the theology behind technology, work, and mission, and advice on how to be productive and to think about productivity in the digital age. Get Plotactivity at canonpress.com today. Not that simple. February 10th, 2020. Introduction. Within the last few weeks, Scott Clark circulated a quote from Southern Slavery as it was, and then Anthony Bradley retweeted it. As a consequence, that whole business got chased around the block a few more times. I really don't think that anything I might say here will persuade those particular gentlemen of my sincerity and goodwill. But in thinking about the quote they cited, and the fact that many friends of our ministry continue to get asked pointed questions about it, I thought I should say a little bit more about it here. Background To review, Steve Wilkins and I co-wrote Southern Slavery as it was back in the 90s. In case you're interested, here's a bit of history behind that booklet. There was a link. You have to go to the website to get these links. You can't click on, you know, that's how it is. After real but inadvertent citation problems were discovered in the booklet, we pulled it from circulation immediately and did so because of those citation problems. But because of the controversy that was going on, and because of questions about what my views actually were, I subsequently published Black and Tan, which contains the basic outline of my views on the subject of slavery and the South. That book contained reworked material for my contributions to Southern slavery as it was, as well as a good bit of additional material. So, if people want to know my views on the subject, my practice has been to refer them to that second book. But I've also found that a number of my adversaries like to ignore the very existence of Black and Tan, which is not surprising in that it was heartily commended by Eugene Genovese, one of America's premier historians of that period in history. And so they merrily continue to quote from Southern slavery as it was. This creates problems for some of our friends, and so they wonder what I would make of those specific statements now. Quite apart from the citation problems, would I want to recast or disavow or explain or contextualize or modify certain views expressed as excerpted from Southern slavery as it was? The short answer is yes, I would. If I were to try to express such a sentiment today, how would I go about it? I would want to make some corrections, qualifications, and adjustments and that is why this is tagged under retractions. At the same time, I'm not under any illusions here. The people who were mad at me before will continue to be mad. I do believe that the point can be made more carefully and more accurately, but I don't believe the historical truth is any closer to being politically correct or woke than ever it was. So wish me luck. And also, by the way, I ran a draft of this response by Steve Wilkins, and we continue to be in agreement on this subject. The quote. So here's the quote that was being circulated along with an ominous-looking photo of yours truly. Quote, Slavery as it existed in the South was not an adversarial relationship with pervasive racial animosity. Because of its predominantly patriarchal character, it was a relationship based on mutual affection and confidence. There has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. The credit for this must go to the predominance of Christianity. The gospel enabled men who were distinct in nearly every way to live and work together, to be friends and often intimates. 
This happened to such an extent that moderns indoctrinated on civil rights propaganda would be thunderstruck to know the half of it. Slave life was, to the slaves, a life of plenty, of simple pleasures, of food, clothes, and good medical care. In spite of the evils contained in the system, we cannot overlook the benefits of slavery for both blacks and whites. Slavery produced in the South a genuine affection between the races that we believe we can say has never existed in any nation before the war or since. Close quote. The basic problem with this is that, as the adage goes, it is possible to drown in a river that is on average only six inches deep. There were horrific abuses in the Southern system, which the booklet acknowledged, and there were other places that were very much like what is described above, as the booklet maintained. But the quote above intimates, although it does not say, that the abuses in the system had to have been rare enough that they could not be taken as characteristic of the system as a whole. At the same time, the war was a severe judgment on the system as a whole. The judgment of the war was God generalizing, and there was righteousness in that generalization. This was acknowledged in the booklet also, but I don't think it was emphasized or underscored the way it should have been. If I were to tackle this subject today, which I guess I am doing right now, I would not want to use any words that implied that I knew how to quantify the two kinds of experiences precisely. I would not want to say anything like most or almost all or anything like that. I would content myself with saying that there were, quote, many, close quote, horrific abuses and that there were, quote, many, close quote, situations that were characterized by benevolent masters and leave it at that. A modern point of comparison would be America's complicity in the abortion carnage. On account of the millions of lives lost, we are most worthy of the judgment of God. God could rain down fire on all of us, and it would be richly deserved. It would be appropriate for subsequent historians to examine how many Americans opposed abortion and who loved and cared for their own children. But it would not be appropriate for them to do so in a way as to make it seem that the judgment itself was unjust. The Way of the Ideologue I said above that there were many atrocities and also that there were many benevolent masters. Why do I say that? I will answer the question, but before I say why, let me say something about the misrepresentations of many of our critics on this point. To say that there were more benevolent masters in the South than is usually thought is not the same thing as saying that the wicked and cruel masters were actually benevolent. One thing the booklet was clear about was that appalling behavior should be treated by everyone as appalling behavior. And so those who believe that Steve and I were defending cruelty as though it were kindness are people who are selling something. So, if someone wants to say that there was nothing but atrocities all the time, that is a position that is taken for the sake of hard ideology and is historically indefensible. And if someone wants to say that it was all Uncle Remus all the time, maintained for the sake of a lost cause romanticism, that is also indefensible. And taken in isolation, the quote above from Southern Slavery as it was, seems like it wants to go in the Uncle Remus direction. So here's why I would say that there were quite a number of cruel masters and benevolent masters, both. During the Depression, FDR's New Deal put a bunch of people to work interviewing former slaves and collecting their testimonies. I'm currently reading those slave narratives, and there are many examples of both kinds of masters in there. And so this is why I feel comfortable saying many in both directions and a few somewhere in between. Here are some samples, and they are all over the map. One of my aunts was a mean, fighting woman. She was to be sold, and when the bidding started, she grabbed a hatchet, laid her hand on a log, and chopped it off. Then she throwed the bleeding hand right in her master's face. 
Not long ago, I hear she's still living in the country around Nawata, Oklahoma. Slave Narratives, Location 253 She was a fine woman. The brown boys and their wives were, was just as good. Wouldn't let nobody mistreat the slaves. Whippings was few, and nobody get the whip lest he need it bad. They teach the young ones how to read and write, say it was good for the Negroes to know about such things. Slave Narratives, Location 393 the white folks on the next plantation would lick their slaves for trying to do like we did. No praying there and no singing. Slave Narratives, Location 398 They used a plain strap, another with holes in it, and one they called the cat with the nine tails, which was a number of straps plated and the ends unplated. They would whip the slaves with the wide strap with the holes in it, and the holes would make blisters. Then they would take the cat with the nine tails and burst the blisters, and then rub the sores with turpentine and red pepper. Slave Narratives, Location 421 The only person I ever see whipped at that whipping post was a white man. Location 455 Slave Narratives, Location 455 They sure never did whip one of Master Holmes' N-word, for he didn't allow it. He didn't whip him himself and sure didn't allow anybody else to either. Slave Narratives, Location 527 Old Master was good to all his slaves, but his overseers had orders to make him work. He fed him good and took good care of him. Slave Narratives, Location 691 Old Master was a fine Christian, but he liked his juleps anyways. He let us N-words have preachings and prayers, and would give us a parole to go 10 or 15 miles to a camp meeting and stay two or three days with nobody but Uncle John to stand for us. Slave Narratives, Location 924 So the idea of the benevolent master is not a myth. The idea of the horrific taskmaster is no abolitionist myth either. In the citations above, you can see obvious examples of each, and such contrasting narratives are not hard to come by. I said above that I did not want to quantify in either direction other than to say there were many examples of both. But I will say this much. On the one hand, the entire population of the South was 9 million people, which included 4 million slaves. The South fielded about 1 million men for the war, which meant that most of the able-bodied white men were away from home. In contrast, the North had about 22 million people and a million men in the field. This meant that many of the farms and plantations continued to operate with slave labor and absent masters during the war, which is hard to imagine if they had all been nothing but hellholes. On the other hand, as argued above, we should not assume that the judgments of God are based on our calculations of acceptable and imagined ratios between benevolent and cruel masters. We don't get to take a vote on when God will be allowed to place us in his holy balances. So there had to be enough wickedness in the laws and in the actual treatment of slaves to warrant the kind of fearsome judgment that came. In sum, So, while there were many instances within American slaveholding in which many blacks and whites did have genuine and godly affection for one another, we cannot say it was characteristic of the institution as a whole. We are not in a position to say this because of the judgment that fell. The problems became more pronounced as things moved toward the Civil War. E.g. slavery in Jonathan Edwards' day in New England was not the same sort of thing as slavery in Alabama in 1850. And as the war approached, the laws in the South grew increasingly draconian. So we can surmise that American slavery was a wicked institution on the whole because God brought a cataclysmic judgment against the entire nation because of it. One last point. Keeping all these principles in mind, we have to remember that we are a wicked generation ourselves and richly deserving of judgment ourselves. We are far more guilty than they were, 
and despite our corruptions, far more insolent in our conviction that we are paragons of virtue. What we actually are would be closer to paragons of virtue signaling. Consider Roe, consider Obergefell, and we are simply asking for it. In other words, to reflect on the historic judgments God has brought upon our people is not an academic exercise. It is one we ought to pursue in the interest of learning spiritual wisdom. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. 1 Kings 21.12 For more books and audio from Douglas Wilson, please visit us at canimpress.com.